Welcome back to Alec Across the States. I'm Dan Reynolds, your host. Today, we're going to be discussing online education and virtual schools. What does that mean? How important is it during COVID-19? Well, as you'll hear at the end of this discussion, it's pretty important as we're seeing so many schools being closed and so many different school districts telling students to stay home to social distance and also protect themselves against the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining me to discuss this conversation is, first, the ALEC Director of the Education and Workforce Development Task Force, Scott Kaufman. Thank you so much for calling in. Thanks for having me. And we have two policy experts from K-12 Inc. Jeff Kwiatkowski, he is the Senior Vice President of Public Affairs and Policy Communications. Jeff, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you, Dan. And we also have Tony Bennett. He's the Senior Vice President for Academics and External Relations at K-12 Inc., And he's also a former superintendent in Indiana and commissioner of education in Florida. Tony, thanks so much for calling in. Great to be with you, Dan. Thank you. So before we get started and get into the nitty gritty of how important some of these elements of online and virtual schools are, can you explain to our listeners who may not be as familiar as you experts are on what online and virtual schools are? Sure. This is Jeff. I'll take that. Thanks again for hosting this. It's uh, obviously um, fresh on the minds of every educator in America today. So online learning has really been happening for a couple of decades now, Um, although many people don't know it. They're sort of waking up to it as the system has sort of shocked everybody into having to learn in remote or distance ways. But today, millions of courses are being delivered online, and that's both in the K-12 space and in higher education. Secondly, there's full-time online schools that exist in over 30 states, serving nearly 400,000 students. And what are those? That is where students are learning remotely from their primarily their homes and receiving a comprehensive education, every course, every class, in grades K through 12, and all of the wraparound services that are needed, including special education and so forth. There are thousands of teachers that are full-time online school teachers who are also providing instruction to those students. There's thousands, tens of thousands of graduates of these schools. And I think a lot of people, now that um, we are in this crisis, are, dealing, are focusing on what is online learning, what are online schools doing, and how can they be of service and help during this time where everybody in the nation is now in remote learning. Thanks for that, Jeff. You know, obviously, you, you've mentioned what's, what's going on right now. Uh, obviously, we're, we're in a national pandemic. Uh, how, are, how have online schools been impacted during this nationwide school closure? Yeah, well, thank you. So, you know, online schools, full-time online schools, are really the only public schools that are open right now. And after this happened, state after state were closing schools. Uh, the only schools that were open were these online schools, and continuity of learning was happening there. In fact, in a few states, uh, when these closure orders were taking place, it was actually impacting the online schools because some policymakers were being uh, some state officials were sort of delivering mixed messages, and uh, so the online schools were sort of stuck. It appeared of not quite knowing what to do, but we've ironed most of those out, fortunately. And so right now we have a situation where its traditional school system is struggling to kind of get its sea legs underneath itself. Online schools are continuing, providing full instruction, full services to hundreds of thousands of students across the country. And that's what we at K-12 are doing. We serve uh, schools in over 30 states. 120,000 students, 6,000 teachers, 
and, and thousands of school districts as well, too. So right now we're in the process of working with them to ensure that the students that are in these schools continue to get educated, even as schools across the country are closed. And Dan, this is Tony. If, if I could add, I, I think yeah, please do. what Jeff says is incredibly important. You know, as I go back in my roles, former roles as a, a state education chief in, in Indiana and Florida, a district superintendent in Indiana, the fact that in light of everything that's going on in our country today in regard to, you know, social distancing, taking the precautions that we need to take, the learning of our children in our schools hasn't been really interrupted. Plus, we are also getting a great deal of requests uh, for help from public school districts, partners we have, state departments of education, because frankly, you know, a lot of our public school partners, traditional public school partners, have no little or no experience in this arena and really can't do anything other than deliver what we might call uh, e-learning through PDF. You know, sending worksheets to kids and it was simply sure. busy work. So I would tell you that, that you know, the whole concept of virtual education and online learning is going to be at the forefront of the education discussion moving forward. So, you know, as you, as you both mentioned, kind of almost overnight, we, we've moved to a remote learning setup. I, you know, I've seen the headline, we're all homeschoolers now. You've already somewhat mentioned how the system is reacting, but it, is it going well? What's going well and what isn't? Wow. Jeff, I'll jump in on that. I, I can tell you what's going well is the fact that, you know, we have, as Jeff mentioned, two decades of experience doing this. So the fact that the, the children that have been in online schools really haven't had their education disrupted, that's going incredibly well. I would probably suggest to you that there are, and I used to use this term quite frequently in, in my former role, there are probably islands of excellence throughout the country where you have very innovative superintendents, uh, school boards, and communities who took every measure to advance aspects of virtual education. And the very fortunate children in those communities are probably the, the kind of the trauma of this and the potential learning loss of this has been mitigated. But I would venture to say, and I don't mind taking a, a quantum leap here, I would say for the vast majority of our country at this point, we could face some pretty significant learning gaps going into next year because schools and school districts had no capacity to address a crisis of this magnitude and flip the switch to online learning. So I, I would, Jeff, do you think that? Yeah, Tony, I think that's right. I, you know, we're going to see a lot here over the next couple of weeks, but I think what we've seen so far is in the initial two to three weeks when the, the school closures really began to happen is just a lot of confusion, uh, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of pointing of fingers, right? School districts were pointing at state officials, and state officials were pointing at the federal government, and nobody knew how do the guidelines work? What do we need to do? Um, you know, what does this mean with respect to, to, you know, every type of regulation or compliance requirements out there? I think, you know, there's been some good movement at the federal level, especially uh, with uh, some direction that they get down to the states, that there should be nothing in federal law that should prevent school districts from being innovative and to, and to ensure continuity of learning. 
that was a very important message, I think, that the federal government gave down to the states and to the local districts. So now the question is, can, can those districts um, respond effectively? And I think, as Tony said, there's been some, some good momentum, but there's been some, some really difficult challenges. And I think it's interesting, too, you see a lot of school districts, some very wealthy school districts, some well-regarded school districts that are sometimes having the most challenges. And then you have other school districts that, you know, maybe they, they, were working in a, they were working online learning earlier on because of the types of students that they serve. Or maybe in their rural area and they had more difficulty transporting students to schools or they're trying to be more innovative because of declining school districts and so forth. Those folks had the capacity, they had um, knowledge, they had structure in place, and so they're able to scale up a little faster. Um, so we've seen that as well, too. I know that our division that works with school districts all across the country are trying right now to work and just get a, a sense of what are their needs and, and what do they need to, uh, to solve, both short-term and long-term. And I'll add this, and this is sort of on the bright note. I've been very encouraged by the way in which educators are helping educators, how parents have been helping parents, how ed tech companies and online learning providers, including K-12, have been jumping in to provide free curriculum, content, teacher training both for parents and educators in school districts to really jump in and help in, in this time of need. A lot of ideological and partisan issues have been set aside, and I hope it stays that way, because now we can focus on what needs to be done to, to meet the needs of the students and the educators and the parents who are struggling right now. You mentioned the federal level, and, and speaking of the federal level, I just got an email shortly before this phone call about the education departments moving to ease distance learning rules. Have you had time to look at that at all? And do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I've, I haven't had a chance to, to really get into it. But, you know, again, to Jeff's point, and I, I want to really give the Department of Ed, the U.S. Department of Ed, some credit here. They have done everything they can do to message that, you know, again, as Jeff said, federal law shouldn't get in the way of, of innovating in the face of this crisis. And I think that's a, a pretty large leap forward. I also think that, you know, this whole concept, and, and we talk about this so frequently, local control, local control. Well, I think that what we're seeing right now, and to, it was again, to Jeff's point, are local communities trying to come together to address this. And I think the, the Department of Ed, very, you know, appropriately, is trying to remove all the underbrush so that communities can do just that. So, you know, that's a pretty general answer because I haven't truly gotten into, you know, the document. But I would tell you in the spirit of, of what I think we're hearing from the federal government, I, I think that's pretty consistent. I was going to say, I just echo that. I think the principle here of streamlining as much of this as possible to the extent that the federal government is going to be helping to provide, you know, emergency funding to states that that come with the least strings attached, that the focus is going to be on innovation on down is going to be extraordinarily important. Um, you know, I will say this though, you know, and there, there have been some troubling signs in some states. I think about Pennsylvania, for example, that passed a law that said any student who transfers from the traditional school systems to uh, an online school during this time would not be funded. And that was sort of a protectionist kind of approach, again, to, to, to focus on funding for systems, not for students. We saw the same thing in Oregon. Uh, the school, Oregon said that virtual schools can continue, but they can't enroll any more students. And 
even even as hundreds of parents were looking for opportunities to ensure continuity of learning, um, in some cases, students who have you know medical conditions themselves that were looking to try to that, whose parents were trying to make the right call, and then in other states we saw uh, better leadership where when schools were closing, but they were very clear this is about in-person instruction. We see this down in Florida and in Arkansas where the governor said we're closing facilities, but we're not closing or ceasing instruction. So there was a lot of, of, of the reactions early on. Some were, were doing it thinking about the existing online schools in the states and the online courses that can be delivered and maximizing the uh, opportunities for local school districts to be able to be innovative and continue teaching. And in other states, they fell into more roadblocks and in some cases fell back into sort of those old ideological and partisan divides. So I think, again, to echo what Tony said, whatever comes out of the federal government moving forward as far as guidelines, uh, waivers of rules, federal funding, the hope is that it can be done in a way that, that gives the local school districts and the state maximum control to be able to to innovate and respond to the challenges that are near-term and, and long-term as well too, so that they're better prepared should this happen again. Well, that brings me to my next question. You, you know, We're an organization for state legislators. What can state legislators do, but also maybe superintendents and school boards to address the issues that we're seeing in places like Oregon and Pennsylvania? Yeah, I, I think a couple things. First of all, I think uh, state policymakers should be thinking about contingency plans uh, to educate kids uh, should there be another pandemic of this sort or, or long-term closures in some respect. I think schools, uh, policymakers should be looking at ways in which we can maximize opportunities for parents to be able to access options and choice. Think about open enrollment. What, what happened in Indiana under Mitch Daniels as governor, where he opened up the state so it allowed for uh, students to be able to access courses and access uh, schools across state lines without the barriers that exist today. I think I think school districts should be looking to develop more public-private partnerships. That should be encouraged as well, too. And, I, and then obviously, you know, the schools that we serve, these full-time online schools, my hope is that we provide more opportunities so that more students can access these, these opportunities, not only in a full-time way, but that, school, that students can be able to access part-time courses as well, too. So that, so that even if there is a school building closure, they still have access to courses and, and can continue their education. I think those are some, some key aspects of it. But no question about it that this can't happen again. You think about long term, the, the school system cannot be in a position where, where, where they are, are caught without any plans to be able to address long term closure issues. If you don't mind, Dan, let me to piggyback on that just a little bit. I, I think one thing legislatures are going to going to have to do is begin to think about what the life will be in terms of the new normal moving forward. I mean, we are hearing all over the country that departments of ed are talking about modeling. Maybe as once this whole thing is over and we get to the other side, maybe as high as ten percent. And we're hearing in some states, departments of ed saying there may be as high as 10% of our children may not be coming back to brick and mortar schools. Well, if that's the case, does the state have a policy framework to facilitate those decisions by parents? And I think that's going to be a, a pretty strong message that if we begin to see that type of, 
uh, of migration from traditional brick and mortar buildings to some form of virtual education, state policymakers will have to facilitate that through the legislative process. There is no question in my mind. Let me just add other one one other point that I think is really important too. You know, for for two decades now, since uh, online schools have existed, they've they fought against the headwinds of a traditional school system system and, and and sort of interest groups that have not wanted them to be a part of the public education framework. And I think my hope is that that there's a better understanding of the value that new models like models like this bring. Right when we think about the hundreds of thousands of students that are in full-time schools. And we know this because we, we work with these families all the time. So many of them are making this choice because of health and safety issues for their students. Well, here we are in a national pandemic where all the schools are closed, forcing all students to learn from home over health and safety issues. And so my hope is that as policymakers sort of think about these types of models and when they hear from parents and from teachers who are making the decision to move to these full-time online schools, they're not just assuming that this is kind of a, a, a niche thing. It's a real thing in the lives of so many families. And so, you know, a greater acceptance to, to these models, um, a better awareness and understanding. And I would add this too. Every single one of the teachers, not every single one, most of the teachers that we work with, the 6,000 teachers, were in traditional schools before transitioning to online schools. They have knowledge to share. They have the experience of how to make that transition to be an excellent in-classroom teacher, to be an excellent virtual school teacher. And that is an incredibly important professional attribute to have. And to be able to help their peers learn that during this time is a huge task because it's during an emergency. But long-term, it would be great if, if state policymakers are also thinking about ways in which educators can have more experience in the field of online learning and remote teaching so that they can help their students and parents during long-term closure problems. Great. Well, we're running out of time, so I want to ask you one last question, which I think you've both already kind of answered, but I'll just ask you more directly, just in case there's any kind of follow-up ideas you have. What should educators and policymakers be thinking about now to rise to the challenge and in the future so U.S. public ed is better prepared for something like this in the future? Wow, um, that's a big question. First of all, I'm going to kind of go to a, a big answer, and that is I think we are going to have to see a greater embrace of the simple concept of school choice because there is very little doubt that there will be an emphasis on that moving forward by parents. So I think that's something everyone's going to have to think about. How do we make sure? And again, sitting here in Indiana as I am today, we're probably, you know, the the most universally choice state in America. So our superintendents, our school boards, our communities understand how to compete for children. And they understand that they need to go another step beyond what they used to think they had to do uh, in order to serve children. So I think there will have to be a greater embrace globally around the whole concept of choice, around the concept of innovation in education and how we provide education real time to children, wherever they are, whenever they are. So I I think this pandemic, this current crisis, 
I think will cause an entire new conversation, an entirely new conversation around education reform that I think will go above and beyond what we were doing in 2008 through 2013 or so when you had that great national conversation about education reform. I think this will be a renewed conversation, and and I I think it may have greater transformative effects. Tony, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I would I will just add this briefly. I think policymakers need to start thinking about what education is going to look like in the future. I think they need to think about how to how to think about everything from funding to compliance to accountability uh, outside the constraints of time, space, and location. You know, we hear this about seat time, for example. The idea that we're going to uh, focus on the amount of days that a student is sitting in a classroom and how many hours they're sitting in a classroom versus how much learning they're actually getting. And I think those are going to be some fundamental shifts because one thing online schools have demonstrated is you can deliver a full, full-time, comprehensive education to all students, low-income, rural students, students with disabilities, and you can do it outside the constraints of the time, space, and location constraints that that schools have. And I think as our country becomes more mobile, I think as families become more mobile, as work becomes more mobile, we're going to have to think about that from the concept of education. And that's going to change everything. Uh, and, And so policymakers should be looking about how they can make the right policy adjustments on important critical issues that don't uh, constrain innovation or constrain the ability for schools to be thinking about how they're going to educate students tomorrow. I think that's uh, an extremely important point that all of our listeners are going to be very thankful for both of you guys presenting today. So um, thank you from me very much uh, for coming on Alec Across the States. That does unfortunately bring us to the end of our segment today. I'm Dan Reynolds, your host. I've been sitting down with the Alec Director of the Education and Workforce Development Task Force, Scott Kaufman. Thank you very much for organizing this great conversation and for calling in all the way from sunny California. Thank you. Of course. And we also have two experts from K-12 Inc. Jeff Kwiatkowski, Senior Vice President of Public Affairs and Policy Communications. Thank you so much for calling in. Thank you, Dan. It was great. Thank you. And Tony Bennett, who is Senior Vice President for Academics and External Relations at K-12 Inc. And he's also a former state superintendent in Indiana and Commissioner of Education in Florida. Tony, once again, thank you so much for calling in and joining to our thoughtful discussion. Great to be with you. And thank you for having me. Of course. And if you are interested in having your ideas featured on Alec Across the States, please do not hesitate to email me at acrossthestates@alec.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.